Would you please pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this particular gospel passage. It's rich in meaning. I ask that you would open our minds and hearts to understand it, that we might experience the new life that Jesus has made available in his incarnation. And Lord, as the preacher, I pray for you to help me be clear this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me five golden rings. I've combed the internet. I have no idea what those five golden rings are. That song is really confusing, and it has all kinds of folklore behind it. And the reason I bring it up is there's one really useful thing about it. It reminds us that Christmas is 12 days long. This is actually the fifth day of Christmas today. And um, despite your neighbor who's already got his tree at the curb and the lights are down and Walmart's got their Easter stuff out or whatever, (laughs) we're just entering into it. And this year, because of the day where Christmas fell, we get two Sundays after Christmas Eve, but still in those 12 days. Um, So this is the fifth day of Christmas, and um, we are in this season, and we are focusing in on the significance of the Incarnation it's just too grand a thing to cover one night, especially when it's eclipsed by all the other festivities of Christmas Eve, that this Sunday we press in again and see some of the significance of what it means that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. So our gospel passage today is from John. It's on page 886 in your pew Bible. It's my preaching text for today. And as you get to John chapter 1, I want to remind you what John says at the end of his gospel. In John chapter 20, he says these signs, the, the, his, his gospel is full of seven major signs of Jesus. He says these signs were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have life in his name. By believing have life in his name. He's offering some kind of a life that is different than the life everybody else kind of naturally experiences in this world. And there's another sign as well talked about. This will be a sign to you. You shall find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. That was our Christmas Eve gospel reading from Luke chapter 2. The angels told the shepherds to go and look for that sign. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. It is mind-blowing to think that that is the creator of the universe entered into creation in such humble means. It's clear that you could misunderstand that. It's, it's understandable to me that people missed that sign because it was so subtle, so humble, that our Lord came to us that way. Now, the incarnation of Jesus makes possible for us a new kind of life. We are able to participate in the divine life. And I wonder, does that describe you? It is possible to live the secular life and not realize you're missing out on the divine life that God has for us. An example of that would be in chapter 3 of John's gospel. Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the, the religious rulers, a Pharisee, came to Jesus asking him questions, and Jesus rebuked him and said, you're a teacher of Israel. How do you not understand these things? And then he says, you've got to be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom. And then, of course, they get into a, a discussion about literal be born again or figurative? What does that mean? And Jesus begins to open his mind. And we'll come back to Nicodemus in a minute. But I'd like to consider that John's prologue, this first chapter in John's gospel, gives us the big arc of salvation, of how our 
the, the global narrative, the big worldview is that God created, we fell, and then he entered our world to redeem us. So it goes from creation, fall, redemption. All three of those things are in these first few verses. So I'd like to look at that and start with creation, first of all. John chapter 1, verse 1. If you were John and you were trying to summarize this miraculous incarnation, God among us, and you were trying to do it for both Jews and for Greeks, how do you do that? How do you share this good news in such a way that it gets their attention? He does it brilliantly with the word logos, the Greek word for word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. By using the word logos in the Greek, he does two things. He gets both the Jews because they pick up the creation idea, and he gets the Greeks because he picks up the wisdom and logic of the Greeks. So if you were a Jewish reader and you heard in the beginning, those three words would immediately take you where? If you know the Bible, you go right back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? By speaking a word. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke his word. So John starts his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's starting to get the attention of the Jews that way, and he's also getting the attention of his Greek uh, readers, because the Greeks studied, you know, the, the rhetorical schools talked about a message containing the logos, the ethos, and the pathos. Logos was the specific words the speaker was saying. Ethos was the ethical life. Does he practice what he preaches? And then pathos was, does he actually believe this? Is he convinced of what he's talking about? So they thought quite a bit about communication and how to win an argument and how to convince a mind. And he comes out, John comes out and says, in the beginning was the logos. He is the word. And the word then came among us. And he gets the Greeks and he gets the Jews with this opening prologue. And, and the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Paul understood that, that contextual need and John met it here. Now it's really mind-blowing that this, this one who created the universe would then somehow enter into it. It blows our minds because we can't be outside of the created order. We have no idea what that's like because we're creatures. We are always in it. We don't know anything other than that. But, but Christ is transcendent. He existed before anything else. He always was and always is and always will be. And so the fact that he entered into the creation, that he became a part, if you will, he took the universe, part of the universe into himself and was incarnated, it, it, it defies categories. It's really mind-blowing. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in his message paraphrase. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Right? It picks up the idea that like Jesus had a house. He, he you know, he ate food and he had habits of where he went and he kept coming back through Capernaum and he, you know, he had a town. He was from Nazareth and he, he moved into the neighborhood. And so as you watch the gospel stories unfold, his followers start by recognizing that he's an interesting character. He speaks with authority. He doesn't sound like the normal teachers. But very quickly they realize, who is this? This is far more than just a normal man. The winds and the waves obey him. He, he commands demons and they, they obey him. Who is this? 
And they start to recognize this is not just a normal person. This is God in the flesh. And then they, of course, begin to worship him and follow him. Now, in John's gospel, he's communicated to us that in Christ is both the divine life and the light. And it's been made available for us. That's the message of this gospel. In Christ was life and light. And in Christ, it's made available for you and me. So John is inviting us into this new life. So that's creation. Then there's fall. If you look at verse 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So it doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us where the darkness comes from or what it is exactly, but frankly, he doesn't have to. It is our everyday existence. We know the darkness of our world. We know the fallen nature of humanity. We see it every day in all kinds of different ways. Just read the news. Just look around you. Just look even in your own life. Darkness is all over the place. And it says the darkness has not overcome it, which speaks of a conflict, right? Darkness is trying to overcome the light. But if you know anything about the nature of light, darkness is just the absence of light. But light actually is something. And so the minute that light enters in, darkness is scattered, It's always, to me, a great exercise to be in a very, very dark room and light a match or even pull out your phone. You know, the movie theaters, if you went to a movie over Christmas, now they put a thing up that says, don't even use your phone. Because frankly, it's pretty offensive when someone even just looks at their screen, just the light on the screen messes everything up in the theater. A little bit of light scatters darkness. And so the darkness was trying to overcome, but it could not overcome. The light was just too much. And if you go down to verse 10, it speaks also of the fall. It says that he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not recognize the one who made them, who made us. And even more so, his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. They maybe recognized that he was from God, but they didn't like him. They didn't like what he stood for. They didn't like what he said. They weren't willing to receive Jesus as the Messiah. They had a different idea of what the Messiah would be like, and they didn't like this one. So they're waiting for a different one. And he was, he was rejected. The world didn't recognize him. His own people didn't receive him. And then verse 18 also speaks of our problem. No one has ever seen God. Now you say, wait a minute, Moses saw his glory, but Moses didn't see God with his physical eyes because God is spirit, having no physical parts. God manifests himself in certain ways to people through angels or theophanies or I'm not quite sure what it was that Moses saw as God's glory passed, but God revealed something of his glory and he, and he only showed him the backside of it. Does God have a backside? I think what he's talking about here is that he was in some way holding back some of his glory because Moses couldn't handle to see that much of his glory. But still, it's not with his physical eyes that he saw God. Until Christ came, we didn't see God. And in Christ, he says to Philip and and the other followers, if you've seen me, you've now seen the Father. He made it possible for us to get a view of God. Now, so there's creation and fall, and then there's redemption. This new life is available for us in Christ, and I ask three questions about that life. What is it? How does one get it? And why do some not get it? And I'm going to answer those three briefly and and not necessarily in that order. Why do some not get it? This is a really hard question. And I know that many of you wrestle with that because every week, as we pray through the cards that are turned in, every week there's two or three cards praying for the gift of faith for an adult son 
or something like that. There are people that, for whatever reason, have just not had their minds open to hearing the gospel. And there's a great mystery in that. And I think it's right to pray. In fact, like the persistent widow, bang on the door of heaven saying, come on, Lord, bring my loved one into the kingdom. Open their minds to understand this. Maybe you're familiar with the word antinomy. I'd never heard of it till I read a J.I. Packer book dealing with the, the problem of the conflict I'm describing. Antinomy is a word that means a contradiction. Whereas paradox, you know that word, is an apparent contradiction. Antinomy is an actual contradiction. In this passage, we see a contradiction. We see that humans are fully responsible for their choices, and yet, apart from God's sovereign act, you can't choose him. Right there, back to back. Look at verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, it says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it looks like it depends on their belief. It's only those that believe that he gives the right to become children of God. And I I will note that he doesn't make them children of God. He gives them the right to become, which seems to imply there's some human responsibility on our part to believe and then to step into that new life. And I'll come back to what that looks like as well. But then the very next verse says, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This new life is a gift of God. They are born of God. I'm speaking of a person becoming a Christian. It is a gift from God. And at the same time, it is a choice. And right there is the antinomy. And John doesn't see any, he doesn't seem to sense any desire to reconcile that. That you have a choice to make about receiving this Christ who has come into the world. And apart from God's grace working in your life, you can't choose him. God's going to give you that life, but you have to choose it. And right there is a tension that's all throughout the scripture. So if you're hearing me this morning, choose life. Open your minds. Receive it. I, I still marvel that God in his sovereignty allowed me to have my mind open when I was 17 years old. Many of you know my story. I grew up in a Christian family. I'd heard the gospel over and over and over again. I went to church every Sunday. But for whatever reason, when I was 17, I went to this youth group. They talked about the same stuff. They opened up the Bible. They talked about Jesus. They prayed to him. We discussed the scriptures. My heart was open, or as Wesley put it, my heart was strangely warmed. And I went, this makes sense. This is the greatest gift ever. I want that. I was given the right to become a son of God, and I chose it. I went in and said, I want this, and gave my life to Christ. And that was years ago now, almost 30 years ago, and it's still the greatest gift I've ever received. And I feel like it's a gift, and I recognize God was working behind me all the time, and I also feel like I made a decision. And there's that antinomy, that that tension. Now, what is it? Okay, what, what is this life? If you go further in John's gospel, you find the word life a ton of times. In fact, I I actually did a little search um, on my software. Um, The word life is in all four of the gospels um, 88 times. And in John's gospel, it's in there 46 of those. More than half of the references to life are in this gospel. So if you start asking the question, what is the divine life he's talking about that we're being invited into? You read through, you could see quite a bit. Let me give you just two facets of it. One is from John chapter 11. When Lazarus dies and Jesus goes to raise him, he says both to Martha and Mary that he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. 
And he, dis- he dis- discusses how those that believe in Jesus, even though we physically die, we will live eternally. So the divine life is an eternal life with God. It doesn't end when this physical life here does. And then if you go a little further to John 15, we see an invitation to abide in God and bear fruit when we do that. And he goes on and he says, I no longer call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master does, but I call you friends because I've revealed to you what the master is doing. So in other words, we in the divine life are cooperative friends with God working for his kingdom in this world. He invites us into his work. He tells us how it's working and he invites us to be part of that with him. The divine life. Now, again, I ask you, are you, are you walking in the divine life? The invitation is there before you. Now, how do you get it? Well, if you looked at verses 9 through 13, where it talks about Jesus not being received, you do the opposite of those things. So you know him, you receive him, and you believe in his name. Look at 9 through 13. Let me just read those again. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, let me go back to Nicodemus for a minute. Nicodemus comes to Jesus under cover of darkness in John chapter 3, a Pharisee, and he's trying to know. He's trying to understand. Teacher, we know these signs that you're doing have to be from God. No one could do the stuff you're doing unless he was from God. And Jesus rebukes him and says, you don't understand. You're supposed to be Israel's teacher, and you don't get this? You must be born again. And he says, how can can a man climb into his mother's womb and be born again? No, you have to be born of the Spirit, Jesus explains. There's this, there's this knowledge of how the kingdom works, and Nicodemus was pursuing it, and Jesus was revealing it. Those who seek will find. Ask, and it will be answered. Knock, and the door will be open to you. So we pursue him, seek him to understand. It goes on and says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I like the Christmas hymn, the, the verse that says, Let every heart prepare him room. It's one thing to know about God. It's another to receive him as your God, to prepare room in your heart for him and his values and his kingdom. We choose to receive him and then to believe in his name, to actually trust that this this baby born in a manger who grew up to be a man and went to a cross and died for our sins, accomplished that for us so that we can be forgiven. We believe in him by trusting in him. Belief isn't an intellectual thing. It's actually putting our weight on it. Like you're trusting that pew you're sitting in. You sat down not for a minute thinking it was going to fall to the ground. It supported your weight. You trusted yourself to it. Believe in Jesus. Put your trust in him. Now, Nicodemus, chapter 3 comes asking questions. Chapter 7, the other Pharisees are outwardly rejecting Jesus. And he steps up and says, hey, does our law condemn a person before hearing him out? And they revile him for being open to Jesus. He's beginning to prepare room in his heart. Maybe this could be the the Messiah. He sees how the other people were outwardly rejecting Jesus. And he went, "Uh, I'm not sure they're right. Let's, Let's look a little closer. And they revile him. And then he actually does believe in Jesus. And we know that because when Jesus dies on the cross, two men go to take his body down. One, Joseph of Arimathea. The other is Nicodemus. It's in John 19. Nicodemus comes and he brings spices and expensive ointment for Jesus' body to prepare him for burial. He's now publicly supporting Jesus. He's, He's become a believer. Nicodemus only occurs three times in this gospel, but it's so interesting to watch his progression. 
He begins to know things about God. He begins to prepare his heart to receive him. And then he believes in him and starts serving him. This morning, if you're hearing what I'm saying, the Lord has opened your heart to the gospel. Choose that life. Enter into the divine life that Jesus has made available for us. He invites us to be his cooperative friends in his kingdom work in this world. Let's pray. Lord, it is really mind-blowing to think that you love us so much that you would be humbled to come and be born and be in that manger and experience life in this dark, broken world. But your light is so bright. I pray that you would shine it in our hearts. I pray that you would reflect it through our lives. I ask that you would give us joy as we reflect on how great this is, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.